Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I am honored and delighted to have Barb Steffens here today. She is a PhD, LPCC, CCSAS, CCPS, CPC, APSATS, just every certification <laughs> available. And she specializes in helping women recover from sexual betrayal and is a sought-after speaker presenter on special issues related to partners of sexual addicts. She is the president of the Association for Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. We call that APSATS. You're familiar with that because you listen to our podcast. APSATS provides training and certification of clinical partner specialists and partner trauma coaches. At her practice in Cincinnati, Ohio, called Safe Passages Counseling, she provides both individual and group counseling for partners of sexual addicts and provides partner recovery coaching as a board-certified coach. Dr. Steffens is the author of Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, How Partners Can Cope and Heal, which has dramatically affected and changed the lives of those who are victims and the professionals who are trained to serve them. It's one of my favorite books. Welcome, Barb. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. That's an awful lot of initials after my name. My kids really get after me about all that, but it's kind of what we do in in this field. (laughs) It's awesome. You're well-trained and the expert in this area, so that's why I'm so honored to have you here today. What and who is APSATS? I mean, we know that it stands for the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, but why was it formed? Well, APSATS really was started out of discussions between myself and other clinicians and a few coaches who were talking about the extreme need to provide better care for partners, better support, because at the time there was very little available and what was available didn't seem to be meeting the needs of the majority of partners that we interacted with. So a group of us got together, did a brainstorming phone call, and out of that decided to start our own training and certification program, which, by the way, was on the very last place on any list of anything I would ever want to do in my life, was to start a nonprofit. But we did. It was formed out of a real sense of a felt need. Partners were being hurt or not being able to find appropriate treatment. And so we stepped up and tried to figure out what we can do. So we now have a strong board. We have a great curriculum and we provide three trainings a year. We do them both in a webinar format so people can stay home and go to the webinar in their jammies. Or once a year, we do a face-to-face training. And we've trained well over, I think, 150 people by now. We've trained people from all over the U.S., Canada, We have one in Singapore, in the UK, and in July, we're doing a training in New Zealand. And so we'll have APSATS trained providers in New Zealand. That is awesome. Yeah. I love APSATS because they are people who understand it from the very beginning. I've said Mm -hmm. so many times that I went into therapists and I sat on their couch and I paid them to train them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, about betrayal trauma. And then and then it was like, oh, this isn't helping. So six weeks later, I'd try and find a new therapist rather than actually paying someone to help me, which mm-hmm. is what I needed. Yeah. And that's just not fair. You shouldn't have to train your, your help provider. No, no. no. It, it's, it's not only not fair, but in the meantime, I'm not getting the help that I need, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in that process, you get harmed, you get hurt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
So yeah. partners of sex addicts have difficulty finding appropriate support and help for themselves. Why do you think it's so difficult to find appropriate support? First, there's not a lot of knowledge about the topic in general. I teach in a counseling program, and I know that when I look at the course offerings, there's very little that's even being taught to therapists that are getting trained about sex addiction or compulsion in general, let alone talking about the impact on the family. So I think it starts there for the help providers. There's not a lot of public education on the topic, and it still tends to be one of those things that people don't understand and so they don't want to talk about it. So there's just very, very little information out there. I think the general, let's say, therapist or counselor, if this comes into their office, maybe they have some awareness of addiction, but they don't make the leap to trauma for the family member or the wife, the spouse. Also, sometimes people think they know just enough because they read one book or something. And so then they start saying, yes, I can help this population and end up not being helpful and sometimes hurtful. But I think overall, it's just a lack of conversation and information, certainly a lack of training. Mm -hmm. I've been talking to my mom about this, and it seems like I'm fighting two different fronts Mm -hmm. society in general and their misunderstanding of the issue. And then also the church, which has such a misunderstanding. You'd think that they'd Mm -hmm. be on opposite sides and they kind of are, but at the same time, because it's so misunderstood with both populations, it's difficult to be able to teach it because the religious community sees it a certain way and they think that you should heal in a certain way that at least for me, was not helpful at all. And then society in general accepts Mm -hmm. pornography or, they don't understand the trauma aspect of it. So I think that makes it so difficult too. It really does. And I'm really glad you brought up faith community because I too have found that they don't talk about it. They're afraid to talk about it. Or when they do, they lack adequate information. And especially when the wife and the spouse goes for assistance, they can get crazy kind of advice that can really be hurtful too. Like just be more sexual. Of course, and your husband's looking at pornography, you must be not doing something you're supposed to do. So those kinds of things don't help at all. Trying to get into faith communities to educate them on this is extremely difficult. I think they have a lot of fear. They don't want to talk about it. I think also we know that leadership in faith communities are struggling with this as well. So it also can be a hindrance to talking about the topic. Plus the fact that it's trauma and with the trauma model, we're identified as actual true victims, right? Not that we need to stay in victim mode or not that we don't have choices or not that we can't be empowered. But I think for a faith community that might have many men who are struggling with this, they don't want to admit that their behavior is causing this much trauma in someone else and that they have left a trail of destruction. You know, they'd rather have it Mm -hmm. be, well, this is my part and your part is... You Mm -hmm. asked me too many questions, or you did this, or you did that, or you didn't make dinner like you were supposed to. Or one of my coaches said um, that her religious community told her that she needed to win him over with her godly demeanor. Mm. 
So that type of stuff is re-traumatizing to women. Yeah. And what you're describing are a lot of the common features that we see in someone who's engaging in compulsive sexual behavior. They have distorted thoughts and beliefs. Those responses from faith communities just sound like so much of the distorted thinking that people have when they're engaged in this compulsive behavior. It's somebody else's fault. It's really not that bad. No one needs to know. No one needs to get hurt. They minimize, they rationalize, they blame shift. And so unfortunately, what a lot of places when they're not adequately trained or they don't want to talk about it, they do the very same level of harm that the person does who is betraying their spouse. They use the same tactics. Absolutely. I was abused by my church leader during this time of disclosure. And it, that that has actually been more traumatizing to me than yeah. the actual betrayal because I was going to someone for help and mm-hmm. I was abused. I, I say abused by proxy because he believed yeah. all the things that my ex was saying. Yeah. So describe treatment-induced trauma. We've just talked about it. Treatment-induced trauma is just a, a way of describing that process that happens when, in this situation, we're talking about the partner or the spouse, goes to someone that they have an expectation that that person can help me. And then in that process, they find themselves feeling harmed. And sometimes the harm in that setting can feel worse than the original betrayal. Mm -hmm. Because you go feeling betrayed, you're very needy, you need to go and tell someone, get some assistance. And then when you're not believed or blamed or minimized, it just adds to the level of trauma. I compare it to a child who's being sexually abused, has the, the courage to speak up and tell someone, and when that person doesn't believe them or tells them that they must have imagined things or they shouldn't talk like that, then that person pulls away and is even more hurt. When I've worked with abuse survivors, the not being believed, they say, is worse than the actual abuse. And I think for partners, there's a level of that that's true, that not being heard, seen, believed, valued, just adds to, in some situations, really intensifies the trauma. Mm -hmm. So that's what we say. There's a clinician that also calls it institutional betrayal. And she describes it as, again, this expectation that this place or this person I'm going to is there for me. And then when they turn against me, they add more level of harm and trauma to the individual. So that's what it is. And I can tell you that since I've started doing this work, I hear it all the time. I get emails, letters, phone calls from women from all across the United States and many other countries. And they're all describing this that similar experience of taking the risk to go and tell someone and then not being heard or being harmed in the process. Mm-hmm. And it really angers me because by now there's enough information out here that I would think people would know what not to do, but it, it still occurs. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I see is that the addict is so good at lying and manipulating Mm -hmm. that they are believed over the victim. Mm -hmm. 
repeatedly. And so that is so difficult because how do you get away from that if someone's lying mm-hmm. about you and someone is manipulating the mm-hmm. support that you're trying to get? And that leads me to think that it's way better to get help for yourself without dragging your husband in so that you mm-hmm. can kind of get a clear picture of what's happening and get solid with what you're doing. I know in cases of abuse, couples counseling, for example, is counterindicated until right. two years after the last abuse episode. Mm-hmm. And yet I would tell therapists that he's been abusing me and they'd say, okay, let's keep doing couples therapy you know they wouldn't say okay then we need to stop and he needs to get help for his abuse Mm -hmm. and so it was just it's really difficult to want to get help to be willing to get help to actually make the effort to get help and then be harmed further yeah and I think a lot of times what happens because we don't have a lot of information on what sex addiction is or what treatment might look like a lot of times the first person that the spouse goes to is either their clergy who's going to look at it as a marriage issue or a couples counselor who's Mm -hmm. going to view it through the lens of a marriage issue and addiction is not a marriage issue addiction is something that's in the individual that affects the marriage but a lot of times people try to treat it as primarily a couple's issue and it's not and i think again that's where a lot of partners are just as you've described harmed, not understood, or abused within the session, and the therapist doesn't catch it. And Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about the word abuse that you're using here. I think that therapists are trained to recognize domestic violence, physical abuse, but they don't have a lot of awareness of emotional abuse, verbal abuse, especially psychological abuse and manipulation. Mm-hmm. And so, again, they're going to see that as a communication issue rather than a power issue, a control issue, or an abuse issue. So they need more training on how to identify those types of abuse. Absolutely. Yes. I'm like, so, yes. Yeah, when, we, <laughs> when we do our APSATS trainings with therapists and coaches, we spend a lot of time talking about the emotional impact, the psychological manipulation, gaslighting, controlling behaviors, intimidation, all those kinds of things that can go hand in hand with active addictive behavior that really contributes to the harm and the trauma that happens with the partner. A lot of times people think the only trauma is the discovery of the secrets. And that's that's horrific. That's traumatic. But what's missed in a lot of help settings is that ongoing emotional abuse that has occurred before the addiction is even found out. Mm-hmm. And it's already done tons of damage mm-hmm. and harm to the relationship, but particularly to the victim, to the person that's on the receiving end of that. And then sometimes the continued abuse for addicts who are in quote unquote recovery. Yes. They're not actually in recovery. They're not mm-hmm. showing recovery behaviors. Right. They may have stopped behaviors the acting out behaviors, but they haven't taken on or started to practice healthy relational behaviors. Or in some cases, I don't know if they've stopped acting out sexually at all. I think sometimes they may be lying. They may Mm -hmm. be hiding things better and just Mm -hmm. talking the talk because they found out what they need to say in order to get their wife off their back. I did a workshop a few years ago at a large conference that 
is there for the sex addiction community. And I called it When the Chaos Doesn't Stop. And I wanted to do that workshop because when partners, let's say it's six months to a year after discovery, and partners are still not getting better in their view, I'm doing that in quotation marks, you can't see me doing that, but I am. The partners aren't getting better And so what I tried to do was uncover the issues that get in the way of partner recovery. And most often it's because either there's ongoing sexual acting out that has not been uncovered yet, he's lying, and or the ongoing chronic emotional abuse, manipulation, psychological abuse, and gaslighting, just the things you were describing, you know, the recovery behavior really hasn't kicked in yet. So how is a partner supposed to start to heal when the traumatizing has not stopped? Exactly. And so we pathologize the partner for not getting well, rather than looking at what is going on in the relationship that she still doesn't feel safe. And to me, that is a huge place where treatment-induced trauma occurs, where the partner is blamed for her not getting better when she is still not safe in the relationship. I see that time and time again. Yeah. And it's so distressing to me because the women in these situations are feeling guilty. They're feeling terrible. They can't figure out why they don't feel good when the behaviors they're describing to me and their husbands sound terrible. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking your therapist isn't picking this up. You know, you're not being protected. Like you're yeah. not safe and nobody's picking this up. There's been a lot with the anti-pornography movement and the movement to bring pornography addiction out into the light to not shame addicts and to mm-hmm. give them more voice and to maybe normalize it a little bit so they don't feel as deviant or as terrible. Mm-hmm. But in that same vein, I think in some ways, the normalizing it has made it so maybe it's not as bad as people. Well, they're not addressing the behaviors that go along with or the behaviors that then become, you know, as a result of Mm -hmm. chronic viewing of pornography or the other types of sexual acting out that can happen with this type of addiction. They're looking at the acting out behaviors alone, not looking at how is it impacting the character and getting in the way of that individual caring about having empathy for the people that they're harming. So they can talk about how to control their behavior so they're not using porn, but they're not addressing how has this impacted you as a human being in your relationships with other people. As people try to get help, but they're not getting the appropriate help, what are the effects of these treatment-related injuries? One of the saddest impacts is that it gets in the way of spouses, of partners going and getting help for themselves. Who wants to go get help and be told that you're part of the problem, that there's something wrong in you, or this wouldn't have happened to you, and then... If they don't agree with that, then they pull away and say, well, I can't trust telling this to anybody because all I'm doing is getting blamed for it. And so they pull away and they don't seek help again. So to me, that's the greatest damage because we know that people who don't get help, who are being traumatized or who are in chronically unsafe, abusive relationships, they can develop more long-term chronic mental health issues. So it just adds to the level of distress. 
for the spouse. So for me, that's the greatest impact. But also there's that secondary trauma that the partner experiences. So not only are they working through the betrayal trauma in their relationship, but now they're working through the betrayal trauma that they experienced at the hand of a clergy member, a therapist, or some other help provider, a physician. A lot of people will go to a physician to talk about what's going on and try to get, say, medication or something. And the physician can do things that are harmful as well. Mm-hmm. So it's the extra trauma that doesn't need to be there. That shame that comes when a partner is blamed for what happens to them. Partners experience that anyway. That's kind of our first response is, well, you know, what's wrong with me that this happened? How did I not know? What did I do or not do that my husband is acting this way? But then when a care provider shames them or blames them as well, that just heaps more shame on the partner. Yeah, and it's a extended form of the abuse. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of gaslighting that happens to partners and it's not all within the relationship. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In your estimation, what can partners look for in treatment or help providers to avoid this secondary injury? Partners are getting a lot more wise now that there are more and more resources available to them, much like what you guys are doing. This is phenomenal that you are offering this kind of information for spouses. So getting educated, but really asking questions before you start working with a care provider. So ask, you know, what kind of model do you use for working with partners? How do you view the partner? Do you believe all partners are codependent? Ask the therapist or the coach, if I don't agree with you, is it okay for me to say, can we do something different? Or if it's not working, how do you handle it if a client says, this isn't working for me, can we try another approach? And if you have a therapist or a coach say, well, this is how I always do it and it works, then you might want to think differently or Mm -hmm. have second thoughts about that. You want a therapist or a coach who is aware of what you need and that that's their primary focus is on getting to know you and identifying how they can help you and allow you to be a very active part of the process. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I hear a lot of times partners go to get help and they are given a program to follow. And first we do this and then we do that. And there's not a lot of room for individual needs, for unique treatment opportunities. They're just looking at one size fits all kind of way of of working Mm -hmm. with partners. And I've never found that to work. Me either. Yeah, me either. We're all different, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, which is why we don't do any static modules at Betrayal Mm -hmm. Trauma Recovery. We don't have any static classes. All Mm -hmm. of our informational or educational materials are free to everyone. And then the support calls or support groups, or we're going to start a crisis drop-in group soon. Mm -hmm. That individual assistance from an APSATS coach is where the real change can happen, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. You deal with the person that's in front of you with their unique history, their unique now, their unique strengths, their unique personality. So you can't just put someone into a module after a module and and expect it to work for everyone. Mm -hmm. 
So just ask questions. Ask questions about how do you work with partners? What's your belief around? How did this happen? What's your understanding of the model around codependency or co-addiction versus trauma? What books have you read? What training do you have? I'm always encouraging partners, find someone that has specific training. As clinicians, I'm a clinician and a coach, so I'm going to put on my clinician hat right now and say, I am bound by ethical codes that say, if I am declaring that I am a specialist in something, I darn well better be able to demonstrate that I have specialized experience, training, and supervision in that area. And unfortunately, a lot of therapists say, well, I treat blah, 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 and they list them. But if you ask, well, where did you get specialized training? Well, no, I, I haven't. I've, I read a book or something like that. So, so ask, how did you get this training? Who supervised you? And what is the model of the training you got? I'm excited. I'm going to get AppSats trained in June. Yay! Super cool. That is really cool. It is really cool. What can wives or girlfriends expect if they go to a family week at a residential treatment center where their husband or their boyfriend might be receiving treatment? Well, they can expect a variety of things. It just depends on the program. And I don't begin to claim that I know what all the various programs do. But most of them have some kind of family week program where family members, including the spouse or girlfriend, can come and get information on sex addiction, but also perhaps participate in some sessions or group sessions, things like that. It used to be very common for partners to be called to go to a week-long family week, and during that process go through kind of like a disclosure experience Hmm. where the person who's getting treatment does their timeline and then shares that with the spouse who comes. The problem with that is a lot of harm was done to the spouses in those kinds of settings when they did disclosure like that because the partner didn't have a therapist that was, you know, uniquely there for them didn't have preparation, usually traveled out of town and so was staying in a hotel room. So after hearing their disclosure, going home alone or to a hotel room without adequate supports, I never recommend that a partner do a disclosure in a treatment setting like that. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's good. So I think what I want to encourage spouses to be aware of is that you can ask them, what is your program? If I come, what could I expect? Would I have a therapist or someone who I would work with who would get to know me? What kind of contact do you have with my therapist or my coach so that they're sharing information? Is there an opportunity for disclosure during that? And if so, then I tell partners I highly recommend you opt out of that for the reasons I just gave. You just don't have enough support. And again, I have too many horror stories about women Mm -hmm. who did go through that. But ask the questions, what do you do? And what if I don't want to participate in this piece of it? I also let partners know you don't have to go. They Mm -hmm. can offer it. They can say, well, this will really help. 
and you can say if it doesn't sound safe to you or doesn't sound like it's going to meet your needs just say no thank you i i really don't feel like that would be what i need right now i am working on this stuff with my support system if my husband has things to tell me then we can work that with our therapists after he's out of residential treatment so just take initiative, ask questions, and be empowered to ask for what you need and to say what you don't want. Listening to this podcast or listening to other information so that you know what questions you can ask. You know, I -hmm. I had been with my SA spouse for five years before I even heard about a therapeutic disclosure or a therapeutic polygraph. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine told me about it. And I was like, what? I didn't even know that existed. And so kind of immersing yourself in books and learning about it is good because then you'll know what questions to ask the treatment center before you go. Sometimes you're at this point where you don't even know what to ask or how to go about it. And having a little bit of a foundation is is helpful, I think. And and I think it's hard too, because if someone's going is into residential treatment, most people with out of control sexual behavior don't go to residential treatment. So it usually means it's pretty extreme. It's been going on a long time and it's a crisis situation. And so to think about flying to another city while the individual is in crisis, trying to go through a family week to me just doesn't make a lot of sense. I wish more residential programs had a designated partner component that really met the unique needs of that individual partner rather than just putting them through kind of what we talked about before, some kind of step-by-step program Mm -hmm. while you're there. They don't need programs. They need support. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. What can a partner do if she has experienced treatment-induced trauma? I think the most important thing to do, if you can, not take responsibility for what someone else did or didn't do that you needed. I think like we were talking about earlier, you shouldn't have to train your treatment provider, your caregiver. So don't own it. But also go and talk to someone about it. When I'm working with my clients, if there's prior treatment or some kind of treatment-induced trauma that they experienced, like from their faith community. That's part of what we do, is processing that, talking about it, working on ways to find healing for that so that it doesn't fester. It makes it more difficult in the healing process, but it certainly is not insurmountable. It just needs to be discussed and uh, worked on to be healed through. Mm -hmm. Don't keep it to yourself. Picketing. Now, I I don't recommend picketing. Do you recommend picketing? (laughs) I have not. But if if the, um, you know, the treatment-induced trauma is severe and you talk through it with a therapist and it seems like, boy, this is not only they didn't understand, but this is a clear ethical violation, then certainly a partner has every right to complain. Mm -hmm. And you can do that privately go to that therapist or that clergy member and talk to them about how it hurts. Certainly don't do that right away. You want to feel strong and empowered and safe enough to do that. Mm -hmm. But that might be helpful. Sometimes there's the level of complaint to a state board if it's a licensed individual. Again, that's usually more extreme. Mm -hmm. Using an antiquated model or not understanding how to help 
that might not be the level to which you file a formal complaint, but that's always an option. But I would mm -hmm. always encourage that, talk that through with someone so that you know what all your options are and then do what, what fits for you. For me, being stuck in that wanting to pick it, not that I would literally mm -hmm. want to do that, but phase sometimes where I think this has to change. This is an institutional problem that I see within yeah. my church and it needs to change. I don't know how to change it. I don't even know where to start. Last night, I spent a lot of time actually just praying. What do you want me to do, God? I don't know how to even overcome this. I don't even know if that's healthy for me in my recovery to worry about the institution as a whole or feel like the, the weight of that is on my shoulders. But because I talked to so many women about it, I think mm -hmm. someone has to do something and maybe that is me. You know, I, I don't know. It's just such a difficult thing to try. It, it, re it really is. And kind of back to where we started, this is in large part why APSATS exists. Mm -hmm. Because we all said something needs to change, mm -hmm. something needs to happen. So there's various forms that you can do that. Short of picketing, I don't know if picketing would be helpful, <laughs> but going and talking or doing education, the, mm -hmm. the services that you provide through your podcasts, through the coaching that you do, that is making a difference. That's bringing about change. You know, the model is changing in the sex addiction field. And in large part, it's because spouses and partners have gotten educated, they have found support, they are connected with other people that believe similar things, and the consumer, in this case, is changing the institution. Mm -hmm. Because they are speaking up, like APSATs, when we do educational programming, we are making change too. So as an organization, we're looking at what else can we do? We want to promote more research. We want to do more community education in different communities to help just raise the topic and talk about it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that we can do. It's up to the individual on what makes sense for them and what's safe mm -hmm. for them to do. Because this is risky stuff. If it you is. go and start to talk out loud in a community setting about mm -hmm. this, because we don't talk about sex addiction, it really can feel emotionally dangerous mm -hmm. and risky and dangerous in other ways too like dangerous to your reputation dangerous yeah. to I mean and that's probably what you meant by emotionally dangerous yeah. but it's just it is really risky and mm -hmm. it's yeah. not something that I necessarily would like to do but I think it needs to be done and I appreciate everything that you personally have done and appsets as a whole to progress this issue it's amazing and yeah we owe a great debt to you actually thank yeah. you yeah well i have really experienced it as a call on my life mm -hmm. that anytime i am having the opportunity to talk to someone about partners spouses of sex addicts and what they need i know that i'm not just speaking for me and i'm not just speaking for absats i am speaking on behalf of spouses and partners everywhere that don't have a voice or don't know how to use their voice. So whatever opportunity I have to verbalize and to stress how extreme this need is for ethical and appropriate care for partners, I'm going to do it. 
Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you from all of us. So I mm. will, I'll be the collective voice of thanks. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, and I'm not alone in doing it. We have a phenomenal group of people that AppSets, the AppSets community is amazing. Yes. It's amazing. I'm very grateful to associate with the eight coaches that I do and yeah. also frequently talk with Dr. Jill Manning, who is mm-hmm. super helpful. And yeah, anyway, it's, it's an amazing community. So for women looking to receive assistance from someone who is AppSats trained, can you mm-hmm. talk about the difference between an AppSats therapist and a AppSats coach? Sure. AppSats therapist would be someone who's clinically trained, so like a professional counselor, social worker, psychologist. We have some clinical specialists who are physicians, MDs. They're clinically trained, and a therapist will usually be working on symptoms and addressing things like anxiety, depression, the trauma symptoms, helping to resolve some of those a trained APSATS partner coach will do the coaching around calling out the strengths in the individual, helping them identify what are the barriers to receiving what they want and need, really coaching them, encouraging them, coming alongside to help the individual meet their goals and get past those barriers, gain resources. So there's some similarities. There's certainly some overlap that looking at strengths moving forward, building resilience, all those kinds of things both a therapist and a coach can do. But coaches have really specialized training on how to, again, pull on the strengths and build on those resource, vision for the future, and get past the barriers that are there. I love it when partners can work with both. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe for a period of time in that that initial crisis where everything's wrong, the trauma symptoms are really intense, if you can work with a therapist there and then work with a coach once those symptoms have subsided. Or I have a lot of clients where I will work with them on the trauma and then I will have them also meet with a coach who helps them just provide more support, work on resourcing, work on recognizing gaslighting when it happens and then taking steps, learning how to communicate, how to take care of themselves when that happens. So they work really well together as a team. Mm-hmm. The AppSets coaches also do a phenomenal job of providing support groups for partners. For a, a lot of therapists, we don't have time, we don't have the setting, All the, there's barriers to partners going to -to face-to-face groups. Sometimes I have partners who don't want to be seen because their loved one is high profile in their community. Mm -hmm. So a coach's group is a safer place for them to go. A lot of pastor's wives will go to a coach for support rather than going to a local face-to-face group. So the training is the same in terms of the APSATS training. Our coaches are already trained as coaches and have demonstrated skill there. And then they're getting additional training on how to help in a trauma-informed way doing what good coaches do. The coaches at Betrayal Trauma Recovery are in all different time zones, and we provide all of our services online. So the support calls can happen during your son's weekly soccer practice when you're just sitting there waiting for him and you have an hour, you know, and Mm -hmm. you can call in and have your support call there. 
and the support groups are all online so you can do it while your child is napping we're gonna try and get one up at two o'clock in the morning because one of our coaches is in is in the uk so for a crisis drop-in group for women who can't sleep and hopefully after a 50 minute group they could at least calm down enough to Mm -hmm. to be able to sleep we're trying to provide it for women where they are and when they need it because so many women are so busy with their children or their work schedules that just one more thing in addition to all the trauma is very difficult which may be a reason why women don't get help is because they're Mm -hmm. so overwhelmed with everything that they have going on oh absolutely Absolutely. I am always amazed when my clients who are in the throes of crisis somehow or another find their way to think clear enough to get to my office and to get back home. So knowing that they can have additional support just by picking up a phone, going online, I love that. As a coach, I love doing partners groups. I haven't done one for a a while, but when I do them, they're amazing because we can have people from all over the country come together at the same time and really support each other. So it's it's amazing. The other difference, now some therapists don't like this difference, but there's no bounds. There's no state bounds. There's no country bounds or boundaries. Whereas for therapists in the U.S., we are licensed by our state. Mm-hmm. So as a licensed counselor in the state of Ohio, I can only do counseling with clients who see me in my state. I live one half hour away from two other states. I can't practice in those states Mm -hmm. as a therapist. But as a coach who is just coaching my clients, not doing treatment, I can do that with anyone anywhere. That's the benefit to Mm -hmm. APSATS coaching through betrayal trauma recovery too, is that people can do it anywhere. We've had sessions scheduled in five different countries so far, 15 different Mm -hmm. states. It's beautiful. I think of myself sometimes as shouting out into the void of the universe. Mm -hmm. We are here. You are supported. You can come. And it doesn't matter where you live. You can find us. And we we are here for you. And we know that there are so many areas where there is no trained specialist. Mm -hmm. There is no one that understands or is trained in treating sex addiction or compulsion. And certainly no partner specialist. Areas within our country and then lots of countries where there is nothing. I mentioned that we have an APSATS trained person in Singapore now. She's soon to be a partner specialist in Singapore, in Asia. She's the only one. Mm -hmm. So I hope that doesn't stay that way. We're going to have more and more. But having coaches so that people can have access no matter where they are, I think is absolutely essential. So in these situations where people don't have a trained certified therapist in their community, what would you recommend for them? If they're having some real distressing symptoms, trauma-related symptoms, extreme stress, trouble eating, sleeping, feeling depressed, those kinds of things, it's really important that you see a mental health professional. So my suggestion usually is find someone and check their credentials, but they are trained in treating trauma and or find someone who is trained and experienced in working with relational abuse and betrayal. Mm -hmm. Um, So someone who has worked in the area of domestic violence Mm -hmm. um, or helping people who are emotionally abused, they're going to get a lot of what partners are experiencing. 
I prefer that than going to someone that understands, you know, chemical dependency or something because they're different. It is just so different in terms of the impact on the family member and the spouse. And I also think an abuse specialist or a domestic violence specialist is better than a marriage counselor in this particular instance. I, I would agree, unless that marriage counselor has specialized training yeah. in recognizing betrayal trauma and working with the couple. I mean, we have a lot of APSATS trained therapists who do really good couples work with this situation because they're aware of the dynamics, but you, you just have to know your couple's therapist. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to say to the partners that are listening to this, that I'm so proud of you for doing what it takes to get support and information that you're seeking it out because that takes risk, especially if you've already ventured into reading things or hearing things that didn't make sense to you or hurt you. And if you are still seeking, you are courageous and amazing. So I want you to know that those of us that understand that and that are especially trained in how to help you, we want to do whatever we can to help connect you to what you need. I'm really, really grateful for these types of podcasts. Thanks so much for the work that Betrayal Trauma Recovery is doing, because there's nothing more isolating, I don't think, than being the spouse of someone who's been sexually compulsive sexual acting out. It's so isolating, so shaming, so scary to think about telling someone. So just taking a risk to listen to a podcast takes courage. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to commend you for that. Dr. Steffens, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for pioneering this for women all over the world who are desperately seeking information and help and they can find it through APSATS. And yeah. You can find an APSATS therapist through APSATS.org. Betrayal Trauma Recovery has eight APSATS coaches that work for us. We encourage you to set up a support call or join a support group. Go to BTR.org. We used to do free consultations, but we got overwhelmed with free consultations, so we're not able to do that anymore. But you can, if you have questions, email any one of the coaches. Just use the coach's first name, like Ray, and then add at btr.org to the end. So you can do a free consultation via email to any one of the coaches, but we're not able to do the 30-minute consultations anymore because of the overwhelming response. We are so grateful that you listened to this podcast. Please keep coming back. If this podcast is helpful to you, rate it on iTunes. You can rate it on SoundCloud. Each rating helps women who are isolated and need help find us. This podcast is supported by your donations. So please go to btr.org backslash donate to donate to keep this podcast up and running to keep this information coming to you. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. I pray for all of us that we can have the strength to find our voice, to speak our truth, and to heal as well as help others who are recovering from sexual betrayal and related behaviors like gaslighting, narcissistic personality type issues, and abuse. So until next week, stay safe out there.